This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. When people talk about self-improvement, they focus on a number of different things. They may try to lose weight or get in better athletic condition. They might learn useful skills for work or for keeping up a home, or they may meditate to seek inner calm. They might try to improve interpersonal relationships, arguing less with a romantic partner or making new friends. And all of these practices are related to personality. Being more driven will help you follow a workout routine. Being nicer will help you make friends. But I don't think people talk that directly about personality improvement as a channel for self-improvement, which is a little weird, because we care so much about other people's personalities. We don't like spending time with people who have bad personalities. And as my guest this week will discuss, there's significant evidence that personality can be changed through effort for the better, at least up to a point. And that's interesting to me in part because personality is an important determinant of outcomes. It can drive financial success, relationship success, trust levels. And since I spend a lot of time thinking about how public policies or economic forces can end up affecting social metrics like that, maybe we should think about how personality improvement is another lever that we can be pulling, either at the individual level or at the societal level. My guest to talk about that is Olga Hazan. Olga is a staff writer at The Atlantic covering science. She recently wrote an article called I Gave Myself Three Months to Change My Personality. It's about her conscious effort to do just that, to be a different kind of person. I want to talk with her about how it worked and what might happen if more people made conscious efforts to adjust their own personalities. Hi, Olga. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So first of all, I just want to say for listeners, this article is really informative. And it's also a lot of fun. It's it's really uh, it's really a successful melding of social science and personal experience together in one article. People try to do this a lot. I, th- I think you did a really great job with that, and people people should really go read it. Oh, thank you. Thanks, I appreciate it. So, what inspired you to try this? So, I um, have been interested in personality change for a while. It's just something that I had kind of uh, looked into like a very little bit from my book Weird that came out in 2020, and then I wrote a like a New York Times op-ed piece about uh, personality change, like kind of after the pandemic, like how to get back into society. And my editors were like, "Hey, this is like pretty interesting. Do you want to, you know, try to do this on your own personality?" <laughs> um, so I like tried not to take offense that they like wanted me to have a different personality. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I was just like, I, I was like, you know, I do feel like I like this was like at this point, you know, more than a year into the pandemic. And I was like, I feel like I'm not really socializing. I'm not really like going out and about. I'm kind of just like a hermit, you know, in my little house and like, maybe it would be good to try to do new things and like kind of see if I can stretch myself beyond like working on the computer and watching TV. <laughs> and so what did people say when when you told them you were embarking on this? I mean, I guess your editors encouraged you to do this. So clearly they they thought it was a good idea. But like, did, were people will like, does that really work? Were they like, your personality is great as it is? Why would you try to change it? What sort of what sort of reactions did you get? Yeah, it's funny. I wish that people had said, your personality is so great. Why would you change it? <laughs> um, no. Uh, well, one kind of surprising reaction that I got from a few people, which I think is like a valid point, but to an extent, they were like, you shouldn't try to change yourself. Like the only thing that needs to change is society. And like, once we have Medicare for all, or once, uh, you know, we have like, guaranteed minimum income, or, you know, whatever else policy, like, um, we won't need to do all this stuff, because we won't be stressed out and neurotic, because we'll have like, all these great policies that make us happy. I like, I think like, the argument could be made that certain policies, like, make people happier or less stressed out or more relaxed. But I think that like, while you're waiting 
on those policies. You can also try to like do what you can to like change your own perspective and like your own experience of the world. I mean, that that's also incorrect, right? I mean, it's it, I'm sure it's correct on some margin, but like, you know, public policy is not the sole determinant of, of happiness or, or of outcomes. So it's not like, you, you know, in a world of ideal policy, there would be no room for various kinds of self-improvement, and including on personality. It would still It would still matter whether people were conscientious and, you know, kept track of the things that they were supposed to do, regardless of what sort of economic system we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But also, like, I don't know, I think there's like this implication to personality change that's like, you must not like yourself, like you, you know, <laughs> you you hate yourself, you want to change it. But I think it's possible to actually like yourself. But I, I keep using the verb stretch. And that re- is really what it feels like to me, which is that like, you know, just like you might like yourself, but still go to the gym to build new muscles, you might want to build like new muscles into your behaviors and the way that you think. So like, is it really true that you like hate parties and can never go to a party and have a good time? Or is it possible that like, you can learn skills to enjoy going to a party and like enjoy socializing with new people? Um, And I think it is. And I I kind of wanted to kind of experiment with that. And I I just, as I write in the piece, I'm very open to experiences. So like, I've never like, I don't really ever like shut down ideas like <laughs> uh, when I hear them, even if they sound crazy. So maybe that contributed to it. <laughs> so, so we've thrown a few terms around here. We've talked about being neurotic. We've talked about being conscientious. We've talked about being open. These are three of the the five ways that that psychologists quantify personality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because everyone has qualitative ideas of like what it is to have a personality. But how do people who measure this academically, what do they look at when they're trying to describe what kinds of personalities people have? Yeah, so sort of like the most well-founded or best researched model of personality is called the five factor. And and there's so there's five, it's extroversion or introversion, which I think most people are familiar with. Conscientiousness, which is like how self-disciplined and organized you are. Agreeableness, which is like how like warm and like empathetic you are toward other people. Openness to experience, uh, which is like how receptive you are to like new ideas or like activities or foods and things like that. Uh, and neuroticism, which is uh, basically how depressed and anxious you are. And sort of the the trick is to try to be like higher on all of those except for neuroticism. Like you want to be lower <laughs> on neuroticism. Uh, and that's the only one that you like is not so good. But the other ones tend to be correlated with like better well-being, like feeling happier, doing better, kind of like thriving in life. Usually people who are higher on all of those tend to do better. And this we think is is pretty well founded because I I know people would talk a lot about their Myers-Briggs types, which is the stuff about like, are you a sensing or intuitive learner? And, you know, people won't shut up about how they're INTJs and that kind of thing. And my sense is that that is basically thought to be meaningless by psychologists, right? Like that, that, that is, that's crap, but the big five is real. And we know it's real because you, you can give people inventories on it repeatedly and they, you know, they don't tend to move around that much or because the measures really do correlate with outcomes. What makes the big five any good? Yeah. So um, that's a good question. And I know like people, I think have a well-founded wariness of, of psychology sometimes. Um, the <laughs> Myers-Briggs, which is like all of that INTJ stuff that came around in like the early 20th century um, when psychology was sort of like just getting started. So it was, it was like Carl Jung who came up with well, he didn't come up with the whole thing, but he kind of came up with the basic concepts behind it. And he just sort of was like, I think people are like this. Like, I think people, there's like different types of people in the world. Some of them are outgoing and some of them aren't. And then these these two women um, whose last names are Myers and Briggs, like kind of took that and ran with it. And they're like, yeah, and like, we can test you. And like, you can be like, a, you know, a thinker or a judger or whatever. 
But that test didn't end up having like a lot of validity. Like it doesn't really accurately predict anything about you. And and most people kind of fall between the categories. So even though I know a lot of people like it's almost like their Hogwarts house, like I'm an INTJ. Like um, it's always it, INTJ. Probably, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I think it's like uh, like uh, unfortunately, like a lot of people are just kind of in between the two, um, and so and they kind of get lumped into one or the other. Um, so there's it's kind of now accepted that that one doesn't have like a ton of validity. Um, but what we know about the five factor is that it's been used in like a lot, a lot, a lot of studies. So like they keep kind of like verifying it and using it in in more and more research. And it kind of tends to show the same things over time. So like every time they give it to people and they ask these questions, like it tends to show how extroverted they are. So that's kind of like why it's like the most accepted kind of personality test and the one that comes up most frequently in personality research. And it kind of like, uh, it's kind of funny, like it kind of gained, like came around in like the 1980s. Like psychologists, like the history of this is kind of funny where they were like sitting around and they were like, how many like factors make up personality? And they were like, is it 16? Like, is it, you know, is it like, you know, is it like liveliness and like sleepiness? Like they were like kind of coming up with like different verbs, but ultimately settled on these five and they kind of encompass a lot of other, a lot of other things that you might kind of use to describe someone. So like liveliness could be an element of extroversion, for example. Right, exactly. Yeah. So like, like if you take the personalityassessor.com, like the personality test that I took, it'll break down each of your traits into facets. So it'll be like um, extroversion, it'll be like friendliness, cheerfulness, like dominance. And those are all like parts of extroversion. Um, And you can be like lower or higher on them. So let's talk about your results. Uh, Where do you score on the five factor model? And uh, what did you want to change about that? When I first took the test, I scored pretty high on conscientiousness uh, and openness, which uh, is good. Like I was pleased with that. The things that were not so good is that I was higher than almost all of humanity on neuroticism. Um, (laughs) I uh, was like higher than 94% of all the other test takers of this personality test. So that's, that's bad. Like I was, I was like trying to work on that and bring down my levels of anxiety and depression. The other thing is that I scored pretty low on extroversion. So I scored in like the 23rd percentile. And so I was like, okay, I'd like to try to become a little more extroverted. And agreeableness, I was kind of in the middle, like I was like, kind of basically average. And I was like, you know, that's, that's fine. But I'd like to get a little bit higher. Uh, on that. So I was I was mostly working on the neuroticism and the uh, extroversion and then a little bit on the agreeableness too. So, so one thing you say in the piece is you say, I've never really liked my personality and other people don't like it either. And, and, and you talk about some specific feedback you got, but I wonder, you know, when I saw your description of your results and I saw that statement, I, one of the things I wondered was, is that really an accurate assessment of how other people feel about your personality? Or is that your neuroticism poking through that you are worried about how other people feel about your personality and inclined to think that they don't like it when in fact they may actually like it just fine? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that very well could be true, right? Like that I'm so anxious about how I'm perceived that I am inaccurately perceiving how everyone sees me. I would say that like, I really don't like being very neurotic. Like that part is is true. Um, Something good will happen. And like, I managed to find a way to like, see it in a negative light. (laughs) Um, And like, I really think that that's like, not very like, good. um, And I'm trying to change that. So I would say it's like, it's like accurate that I don't like my personality that much. And I would say like the way that I am described sometimes by people uh, is not ideal. Like I, I get a lot of like, you always, you know, you never look on the bright side, or like, you're always anxious, or like, you always, you know, 
And I'm like, I don't know, do I, do I want to live my life as someone who's like known for being like kind of anxious and negative and like reclusive? <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the other thing I want to talk about before we get into what, what you sought to change and, and how and, and why is another thing you say about your own neuroticism is that you almost describe it as though your, your neuroticism has helped you be conscientious, that basically you, you ascribe some of your past career success to basically, you know, this trait in your personality causes you to white knuckle through these things and causes you to be on top of everything. And I think a lot of people with anxious personalities describe their anxiety this way, that basically it's, you know, it's like, well, that, that's what, it keeps me on my toes. And it's basically describing, I, I think, a flow through into conscientiousness, right? So like, I guess one concern you could have is that if you if you relaxed, you might let go a little bit and you might be less conscientious. Now, is that something that worries you? And then also, do you have a, did you have a strategy around, well, I'm going to be less neurotic while remaining as highly conscientious as I've been all along? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I kind of wish that I like this piece could have been longer and I could have done more research in the connection between neuroticism and conscientiousness. Cause I think a lot of people do feel that way. Like, especially like people in industries like writing or just like really high stakes kind of professions, like they kind of do feel like if they relax a little bit, it'll all just like let go and every they'll lose control of everything. And I, I feel that way a lot. I guess like one example of like where I try to draw the line between the two. Uh, and this was like, so magazine articles, when they're completely done, they're like done, you can't make any more changes. And then there's like three <laughs> weeks of time. And then they like go online or they go out in print. And so like you literally have this three week dead zone where you're just wonder if I got something wrong. Um, And (laughs) like that used to really that three weeks was like the worst three weeks of my year. Like I would just really drive myself insane. I would like reread it over and over again. I would be like emailing people back and being like, are you sure? Like, you know, driving myself crazy being like, what if I got something wrong? And this time I was like talking to my therapist about it. And I was like, I don't feel the urge to do that. Like, even though I was very neurotic in the lead up to or or and or conscientious in the lead up to the piece closing, like I was like, you know, the fact checker would email me like at night and I'd be like, okay, hang on, I'm going to find the like, study. You know, I was <laughs> I was like very on top of it. And I wouldn't say that I was like relaxed about getting everything right. But I kind of just maybe it's like a serenity prayer or something. But I was like, you know, I have done all I can. The thing is closed. I'm pretty sure I didn't make any mistakes. If I made a mistake, everyone makes mistakes. And like, hopefully it's like not a career ending mistake. (laughs) Um, But like, there's only so much you can do in life. Like there's only so much you can, you really can control. And I, I think like some of the meditation and stuff that I've done has really helped me like see that like you can have worth as a person even if you make mistakes, which is kind of honestly like a very new concept to me. So we take this personality profile you described for yourself. And so if you were then going to try to change it, it seems to me like we sort of have three separate sets of questions. The first is, can personality change? The second is, can you cause it to change? And then the third is, will that affect outcomes that you're interested in once you've caused it to change? So I guess let's start with the first thing. How much do people's personalities change over time? Are are we basically the way we are uh, for the entirety of our lives or is there a lot of change? No, I mean, we all do change over time. Our personalities do kind of evolve, um, even if you don't do literally any of the stuff in this article. So uh, like there was like this one researcher who um, tested the personalities of these high schoolers in 1960 and then again, 50 years later, and they found that 98% of them had changed on at least one personality trait. 
like depending on like what kind of job you have, like that can sometimes make you more neurotic and introverted. Um, Generally over time, like as they age, people get less neurotic and more agreeable and conscientious. So like if you notice like older people tend to, even like with COVID, like they were like more relaxed about COVID. That's like, (laughs) that's, I feel like contrary to to the stereotype I'm, I'm used to hearing that like, you know, people become like crotchety and set in their ways as they get older. There's this idea that people get more difficult. And so I'm, I'm interested. I, I was a little surprised by that finding that people get more agreeable as they age. Yeah. Um, so I think um, the thing that you might be noticing is that people do get set more set in their ways. They actually get less open to experiences as they get older. So like um, if you grandpa always wants to eat at the same diner at like 4 p.m. and like, you know, orders the same thing and that does uh, jive with this research. But in general, like, yeah, you, you get older it, up until like a certain point. I think like at a certain point they start picking up on like dementia and things like that. But uh, in general, you get kind of less less neurotic. Um Uh, And you also become more conscientious. And like, I do notice this, like whenever I report on older people, like they're always like returning their emails really quickly. And like, I always feel like they're always like on time to appointments and things like that. And like, they just like have this, not that other people don't, but I feel like they're always like a little bit more up on it than, than others. Yeah, I was, I was interesting. I went, I went and took, I believe the same test that you took. It was from the, it was on the same website from the same professor, um, mm-hmm. to, to get my, uh, my five factor scores. And I had, I was, I was a psychology major in college. So I had definitely taken a bunch of tests like this approximately 20 years ago when I was taking those, those undergrad classes. And where I score is I'm, I'm very high on extroversion, conscientiousness, uh, and openness. And I'm very low on, on neuroticism and pretty low on agreeableness too, actually very low on agreeableness, depending on exactly which, which test that I'm taking. And I was interested to see also, I know that the, the one area where I've had really big changes, I'm much more extroverted than I was when I was much younger, um, mm-hmm. which I, I'm, I'm sorry, did you see, does that tend to change in any particular direction with aging? Not necessarily. Um, okay. The three that change are neuroticism, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. Yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting to me. I mean, I think some of that is is what I've done professionally where I've, you know, I've had to deal with people and, and I've, I've gotten more used to doing that. I lost a lot of weight in my 20s, actually, and I think that it changed the way that people interacted with me in a way that, that changed the way I approached social interactions. And so it was, it was interesting to me seeing that, that that was, you know, I've, I've noticed that in my personal life, but there was quantified in there that I'm really quite a bit more extroverted. I, th- I think I may also, my conscientiousness score, I think, was never bad, but I think it's higher than it used to be, which, again, would, would make sense with aging. But that, w- that was just an interesting thing for me to see that, you know, there's a, a quantification of the, of the change in, in my personality over time. So then let's talk about intentional change. Uh, You had three areas of your personality that you were setting out to change. Which changes did you want to make and what was your strategy about making them? I wanted to make this as scientific as possible, but it's like, it's actually like very hard to get a real psychologist to like prescribe you personality change. <laughs> it's like, um, so instead I used like basically this program that was devised by Nate Hudson, who's the creator of that personality assessor website. And he has done a bunch of studies on personality change. Um, so I kind of used the strategies that he gave to um, his uh, research subjects when they wanted to change their personalities. So for extroversion, it was a lot of like going out and meeting new people and like saying yes a lot. Um, and also doing improv, which is an idea that I had from um, Christian Jarrett's book. <laughs> so for improving extroversion, it sounds like basically you act like an extrovert and then that will make yes. you into more of an extrovert. So it's just a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Yeah. Like that's like Nate Hudson's like, here's how you do it quote to me is like, just fake it till you make it. Like you just have to pretend like you are like that and like you will become like that. 
And why does that work? I mean, is it is it that you know you you do the extroverted things and you like realize that they're not that bad and people didn't bite your head off and you know you you did not have to like in fact like shrivel up into a tiny ball because you didn't make people laugh one time in improv or something like that? Like, what is why would performing extroversion make you more extroverted? Yeah, so I don't totally understand why this works, but I have a few theories. One is that personality is just uh, like the questions that they ask you is like do you go out and talk to people? You know, do you enjoy going to parties? And if you like never go out and talk to people and never go to parties, you're going to check no for those questions. Right. But let's say I go to like uh, five parties and like three of them are really fun, but two of them are kind of lame. Then when I'm like thinking back, do I enjoy parties? I'm like, yeah, like for the most part, like three of them were really fun. So yes, I do. So I think just like doing the things like helps you understand do you enjoy this and like the more you do stuff the more you're gonna enjoy it realistically I am still doing improv and I'm in level two and I'm better at it and enjoy it more than I did for the level one that I did for this article (laughs) wait so Um, you're doing the improv it's no longer a work assignment you're doing it because you actually enjoy it or you're doing it because (laughs) it's bringing you actual personality improvement and you want to continue that or a combination of the two um a combination so I Realize that I actually really like it. Uh, it's like a really, uh, really great break from the rest of like my week, which is just like nonstop reading, writing, slack, analytical thinking, you know, and it's just like be a bonkers like lunatic for <laughs> a few minutes. <laughs> I don't know. I just find it really, really fun. I also think it's like very good. Um, if you are a very high strung uptight person like me, it's like very good for breaking some of that down because it kind of, uh, even some of the things that you're supposed to do in improv to keep from like panicking and like running off the stage in tears, is like kind of some <laughs> of the stuff that you can do in normal life. <laughs> okay. So I just found it like really helpful in a lot of ways. And I kind of found myself missing it when it was over. So yeah, I decided to sign up again. <laughs> You also wanted to increase your agreeableness. What was your approach to that? I took a anger management class um, or like a, yeah. Uh, I believe you said you were the only person there not court ordered to be there. Yes. I did not realize that most people don't sign up for anger management classes. I think most people want to do away with the stuff that makes them angry and not reduce their own anger. And I think that's, that's the difference. But yeah, it w- that was like, that was interesting. That was like not as helpful, I think, because it was structured so that like, like these court ordered people could like go through the motions and then like get their certificate, you know? What do you do in anger management? Um, you learn like a lot about anger, like where anger comes from. And then you learn about like strategies to reduce your anger and like, yeah. And like a lot of them, a lot of them are kind of basic, but I think just talking about anger in an open way was really helpful. Like being able to just say like, I really struggle to like come down from like extreme anger whenever I'm angry and like have other people be like, yeah, me too. That's how I like punch that, like, you know, uh, whatever, like, uh, stoplight. So was the, was there a success here? Are you more agreeable than you were when, when you started this out? No. Okay. So this was a point of failure. So for whatever reason, I went down in agreeableness. Uh, so I went down in neuroticism (laughs) and I went down in agreeableness, which is not what I, what I wanted at all. And like, I don't know if that's an indictment of like the particular class I took or like, I don't know. One of the experts said that it's just like really hard to increase agreeableness. Um, Like it's just a trait that's like very difficult because it's so like inner self, you know, like 
having warmth and empathy toward others. Like you almost can't teach that. So I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, so one thing I was going to say was that anger is only one element of disagreeableness, right? Like there are, you know, there are a number of components of, of the agreeableness measure that have to do with empathy and various things where you don't, where you don't have to be angry at someone to not be being agreeable with them. So I don't know if there was some, if there's a, I don't know what an exercise looks like to improve empathy specifically, rather than I can imagine what certain exercises are like to contain or, or reduce or avoid anger. I don't know. Are there other, do you have a further agenda around agreeableness or are you just sort of settling in that this is your level of agreeableness? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like to at least get back to my, <laughs> my previous. Um, so one thing that was interesting that I found is, so a big part of agreeableness is like your trust in other people. And I kind of started out with like very low trust uh, to begin with uh, in other people. And I, I think it got even worse. And one of the researchers that I talked to was like, maybe because you were doing all this stuff and you were like, I'm pretending to be an extrovert. I'm pretending to be agreeable, you know, like um, that maybe I got the sense that like everyone is kind of always pretending and that like they're completely not trustworthy and that like everything is kind of a lie. (laughs) Um, And so he thinks that maybe I just like, I don't know, I like underscored my own distrust of other people, but I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what happened. (laughs) And then let's talk about neuroticism, because that sounded like sort of the most important agenda item for you was trying to reduce neuroticism. So what was your strategy around that? That one also involved a lot of journaling, like stuff where it's like, uh, if you think something awful is going to happen, like three reasons why it might not happen, like stuff like that. The big one for that was uh, meditation, which was uh, really, really difficult for me uh, in the beginning and still <laughs> is sometimes. But ultimately, I got to where I was meditating, like, at least 10 minutes a day. And did you find that your neuroticism improved through this process? Oh, yeah, I did actually go down in neuroticism. I went down to like, um, from the 94th to the 77th percentile, I think. Oh, that's which a big is move. Still, yeah, which is still pretty high, but it's like... Yeah, but 77% is kind of normal. I mean, you're almost within the, you know, the, the middle 50% of the population <laughs> there. It's, you know, the... <laughs> yeah, it's... it's still considered high, but it's not extremely high. <laughs> So neuroticism seems to me like the the aspect of personality that's sort of most traditional that people are are trying to modify and, and that the, you know, that the whole clinical psychology industry is focused around, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a measure of anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression are very explicitly treated through through those channels. How effective is is that? I mean, I would think, you know, the number one thing people do if they're trying to reduce their neuroticism is that they are, you know, maybe they they go on medication for whatever aspect of that is, if they have a if there's a clinical issue, um, they go to therapy. Therapy, those sorts of things. How, how effective is that at, at producing? I mean, we don't always think of that as personality change, but really that is personality change, right? If people are becoming less depressed, less, an- less anxious. Yeah. And I, um, like, just to be clear, I'm not saying like, don't take medication, just like do these three simple tricks. Like, um, I definitely support medication and therapy and I'm, I'm actually in, in therapy and I was doing it in addition to this stuff. Um, I've been in therapy for a really long time though. So I saw this as like a way to kind of augment or like, um, accelerate, I guess, some of the changes that I was seeing in therapy. The evidence for therapy is very good. Um, like there's one study that found that like a month of therapy or something like that, uh, reduced neuroticism by like half the amount that you would expect it to decline over the course of your life. I'm sorry, I don't have the study in front of me, so I hope those are the right numbers, but basically like, I believe that's what you say in the article. Yeah. There's like a, like a short period of therapy, like helped reduce neuroticism by a, a huge amount. Medication, it's like hard because like each person responds to it differently. And like SSRIs, we still don't know really why they work. It's true that a lot of people benefit from SSRIs, um, but a lot of people also can't tolerate them. 
So I don't know. It's sort of that one's a little bit more of an open question. I also want to talk some about conscientiousness. And you you were satisfied with your existing high level of conscientiousness. But I assume that that's something that a lot of people want to work on because conscientiousness is very important for outcomes, right? It's good, it's good for income and academic achievement and, and relationship outcomes and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, all the there's like a, a lot of studies on this. And like, basically, conscientiousness just helps you be a lot better at your job. There's just a lot that like knowledge work requires of, of keeping track of things and like, you know, being on top of things and, and conscientiousness just is, is so helpful for that. Um, so yeah, and a, a lot of people, it's like one of the most valued things that people want to change about themselves. And are there good strategies for that, people who are trying to be more conscientious? Yeah. So because I didn't personally try to do this, like I can't speak to like what really worked for me. Um, but it's unfortunately like kind of boring, but it's it's basically just like making a really strict schedule and sticking to it, giving yourself a 15 minute buffer window. If you are the kind of person who like runs late a lot, you know, like, uh, like decluttering your house and like organizing everything. And like, um, unfortunately, like, I know that sounds like, well, that's just like doing what a conscientious person would do, but that's like, it's like, (laughs) yeah, like you just kind of have to like push through the like chaos Muppet impulse and like be like organized and and tidy and on time. (laughs) And so one thing I always wonder about when I see these results is, you know, it certainly makes sense to me that like being organized helps you succeed in your job. And if you become more organized, you you may be more successful. But some of these things like openness, more successful people tend to be more open, but openness is also, it's it's highly correlated to intelligence. And then also one thing you describe in the article is that if you, uh, more open people are more likely to go to college and then at college people become more open because it is the type of experience that, that you get exposed to things it makes you a more open person. And so I look at that and I wonder like, is, you know, is openness causing academic success or are we just seeing that academic success is causing openness? Or are we just seeing that openness is correlated to intelligence and intelligence is, 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 uh, is, is causing academic success? Because there's some of this stuff where you could almost end, with a, end up with a cargo cult where basically like you observe that there are things that successful people do and you do those things, but those things aren't what made them successful. And now you're just a person performing the personality of a successful person in a way that may not actually improve success. So how do you, how do you figure out which are the important things to do if you're trying to actually change your personality in a way that will make you better off? So openness, I would not say is the trait that is most correlated uh, with success. Um, Conscientiousness is, um, and actually your personality specifically is like, is like pretty correlated with success. Like your (laughs) traits that you talked about earlier, like, like low agreeableness, low neuroticism, high openness, um, high conscientiousness is, Why, is thank you. Um, pretty good. Yeah. And there's, there are like correlation and causation problems, right? Like maybe becoming a CEO, like those people were used to be like total slackers who would like smoke weed all day. And suddenly they became a CEO of the company and they were like, oh my God, I have all these people like asking me for things and I have to like set up email reminders to like do stuff. And like, suddenly they're more conscientious, <laughs> you know, and they're also more successful because they were promoted. So yeah, it can like create kind of a feedback loop where you're put in a situation, you act a certain way, and that makes you more of that type of person. I mean, I think that happened to me with journalism. Like, I don't really feel like talking to random people is like a very natural state for me, but like, I just do it so much that now I'm like, oh yeah, this isn't that scary because I just, it's just part of my job. But I think, you know, starting out when I was like, you know, 20, I was like, oh my God, I am kind of scared, you know, (laughs) to do this. (laughs) 
so we, we've talked a lot about personality traits being desirable or undesirable or associated with success, but I assume that like, you know, there, there has to be some amount of it takes all kinds here, right? Like, I mean, there are certain personality traits that maybe we don't want in anyone, but there are, I, like, I don't, I, I can't think of an example of where it would be good to be less conscientious, for example. But one thing you note is that a lot of journalists, at least anecdotally, I always hear journalists talking to me about how neurotic they are. I feel like a little bit of an odd, odd yeah. person out in the industry. Um, but that, you know, you, you describe that neuroticism can make you suspicious. And if you're suspicious and you ask more and better questions, then maybe you figure out things that other people don't figure out. I, I can tell a story about why that would be good for a journalist. So are there some things where it's like this isn't a good personality trait or a bad trait? It's just a trait that will be good in this circumstance. And the way you deal with that is not to try to change your personality, but to, to change what you're applying your personality to? Yeah. And, and some of the experts that I talk to kind of are more of that philosophy that like the problem is not being a certain way that it's, it's like being rigid in that way. So like, it's like, you can never, you know, stop being that way. So like when you're negotiating a job offer, like that's not when you want to be like, yeah, sure. I'm fine with whatever. Like you want to be really tough and disagreeable and like, stick to your guns, that doesn't mean you're a disagreeable person. It just means that the situation calls for you to act a certain way. Generally, you want to like avoid the extremes of any of the traits. Um, so, so like Catherine Page Harden was basically saying like, you know, sometimes it can be effective just to be able to like behave in a certain way in certain situations. One thing you said in the article that surprised me was that there are not significant cross-country differences in aggregate personality and personality averages. Certainly that, you know, we have all sorts of stereotypes about the personalities that are associated with with different countries. There's really the, there's nothing there that it's like you know people in Italy aren't more uh, extroverted than people in Norway kind of thing. So this really surprised me because my uh, mom is Finnish, and the the thing that like Finns even like advertise about themselves is that they're very introverted. That's their national thing like um they don't like talking to people and they're they're happy to not do it so yeah so when i read that I, w I was really surprised i think what might be happening there is that like they're looking at like averages of all like if you look at an average of like a ton of people millions of people it's all going to kind of come out in the wash like if you took the average personality of all americans it would pretty much be like toward the center of all of those personality traits so i'm wondering if what they're finding there is just that like the population is so big that like it's all like kind of evening out. It can't just be about size, right? Because if, if you had these, you know, if, if Finland really is full of introverts and then you average them, you're, you're going to find that the average Finn is an introvert. Is it, did we just make up that stereotype? Are there, you know, are, are the extroverted Finns, are we hiding them somewhere? Like, I don't, the, because <laughs> it, it, it seems, if, if the averages are the same, the extroverted people that you find when you go to Italy and, you know, random people on the street want to talk to you about things. I mean, I guess, is, is it just that? Is that what we're seeing is a cultural difference about, you know, what it means to be open and relating to someone? And we ascribe that to a personality difference, but it's really just that like if a Finn is extroverted, they will express that in a different way or, or something. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to square what seem like real observed behavioral differences across countries. I mean, I mean, I guess one possibility is we made all of that up and that, you know, that there aren't really those behavior differences, but if there are, and I think, I, I think there are, then is it just that we're just incorrectly ascribing that to personality? Yeah. I mean, so there's definitely different cultural norms, right? So like in some cultures, like you greet each other by like kissing on the cheek or whatever. Um, and like, I'm not trying to say that people, your eyes deceive you and they don't actually do that. Um, uh, <laughs> but I'm wondering if like, maybe they don't see that as like, actually like an extroverted behavior, you know, like they don't, I would feel like that's like super, like literally in your face and like, <laughs> like uh, very extroverted. Like maybe that's just like 
seen as like a very normal thing to do and not a sign of extroversion. Um, I believe that the authors of the psychology compendium where I found that paper, um, they kind of say that like uh, people tend of different nations tend to like present themselves a a certain way. Like they tend to say like, oh, Finns are all really introverted. And so we're all introverted. This is what we're all like. Like people kind of like buy into the uh, national stereotype of their own nation. So I don't know, maybe it's, it's like when you go to visit Finland, they're like, oh, yeah, one thing you'll notice is that we're all really introverted. But you know, they're actually not they just like kind of this is kind of like a cultural myth that they're passing down to other people. Because I, I, I found it a little deflating if there aren't those cross-country differences. And, and the reason for that is that, you know, if, if it's possible to have mass-scale improvement on personality, if there are things that either individuals can do or if there are public policy levers that we can pull that, you know, as you describe, you know, what if we had Medicare for all and people didn't worry so much about healthcare, maybe they would be less stressed out and you'd get lower neuroticism, that sort of thing. It seems like if those mass factors matter for personality outcomes, you should get some cross-country differences in the way that, you know, you have differences in diet across countries and that manifests in, you know, in different weight distributions in countries because there's a different, you know, there's a behavioral difference and it's causing a real outcome. And it tells you something both about what you can do at the societal level and what you can do at the individual level. It just makes me wonder if, you know, if if you have all of these different cultures with different values, different public policies, that sort of stuff, and you're getting about the same personalities in the aggregate, it makes me wonder about how much we can really do to push personalities around. If it was, you know, if it was possible to have systematic change, presumably someone would have had it. Yeah, you know, I do not know about like public policy that changes people's personalities. Like, I think that would be pretty tough because like so much at like I <laughs> I had to like drive to improv and like do improv and like, you know, like I don't know of a policy that would push me to like change well, my personality. I'm not saying we should do this, but I mean you could have mandatory improv in K-12 schools if improv is actually an important lever on extroversion. Yeah, and, and we consider that desirable. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's, you know, that we need a budget for more improv in schools. But if you, if you wanted a change in the societal level of improv that was done, you could do that through policy. Yes, you could definitely force people to do improv. Um, but I, I think a lot of this <laughs> stuff is like, uh, like, it has to kind of come from within. Like, I, I just don't know about like, like making people make new friends or like, I don't know, Catherine Page Harden said something interesting to me, which is like, when I asked her about why I didn't get better on agreeableness, she was like, talking about how like, all the interventions that try to like, help with sociopaths and psychopaths, like, they're like, really hard. And like, they don't like a lot of them don't work. And like, the, it comes down to like, I don't know how to make you care about other people. <laughs> or like, I forget what the exact quote was, or like, I, I can't tell you how to care about other people. And that's it's because it is it's like, it's like very difficult to force people to be different, or, or, you know, even like basic behavior change is like very hard at a societal level. Um, and this is like a lot deeper than that. And so then where does this leave individuals? I mean, you describe, you know, you can't make people want to change, but if people do want to change, I mean, it's, it sounded like one of your frustrations here, maybe that, you, that you've described is the, the extent to which you had to improvise exactly what the right interventions were for you to adjust your personality. So where would, and I would reiterate significant success here. I mean, like dropping almost 20 points on percentiles for neuroticism seems like a really large result for, for a three month effort that might, you know, make other people look at this and say, you know, hey, I, you know, I, I would like to be a little bit better in these ways on the margin. What can I do? What's the, where should people start if they're trying to figure that out for themselves? It, it is tough. I had to like look in the index of some study that was published that I was like looking through the back of a PDF. Um, 
I do think that there are some researchers who are working on like apps for this kind of thing. Um, so like read my article um, and like, <laughs> you know, follow if you want to improve on some of the things that, that I did. But yeah, it is I it is kind of frustrating that there's not like a better or more systematic way of, of knowing what to do. I guess the only advice I would have is just to like, um, and I think some people figure this out intuitively is that like, you kind of have to behave like the kind of person that you want to be like you you kind of just imagine what like an organized person or a really open person would do and kind of do those things even though i know that you know it's a lot harder to do that than like i had a checklist of like did you meditate today did you journal today you know which is kind of keeps you a little bit more accountable <laughs> uh let's leave it there for this week olga hazan is staff writer at the atlantic you can find her piece on personality there uh, and we uh will link it also in the uh, episode description for this podcast olga is also the author of a book called weird the power of being an outsider in an insider world olga thank you so much for talking with me and, and thanks again for this this piece that you know really shared a lot of yourself um in a way that i think will, will be useful for a lot of people who've read it Oh, good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to be the first to know about upcoming podcast topics and guests and to be able to suggest questions for them, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please also consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this podcast and the newsletter as an independent media venture. We'd also like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>